That's a sound that the younger listeners may not be familiar with. But those who've been around longer are sure to recognize it as a telephone's busy signal. You tried to call someone on your landline, but if they were already talking to someone else, or maybe if the phone was off the hook, then you would get that signal. Usually there's not much that comes of that, but back in 1967, a man named Harry Nilsson heard that sound after he had tried to call a friend. And he was about to hang up like you're supposed to do. But Nilsson was a songwriter. So just as he was about to hang up, it seems that the songwriting part of him sort of switched on. And he suddenly heard something musical in that signal. So he stayed on the line for a few minutes. He listened and he thought, and he kept on listening and thinking with the phone receiver pressed to his ear. And soon, he was writing a song. Nilsson was also apparently feeling lonely. The failure of his friend to answer his call added to that feeling, no doubt. So the song that he wrote based on that busy signal and those feelings was one that you may have heard. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one It's the loneliest number since the number one That song is called One And by the way, it was made popular not by Harry Nilsson, who wrote it But by a group of musicians who called themselves Three Dog Night If it's a terribly cold night in the dead of winter you bring a dog into the bed to help you keep warm. If it's indescribably cold, you bring two dogs. And if the temperature is frigid beyond all reason, then you've got yourself a three-dog night. That's how they got their name. But that's just a tangent. What we're talking about on today's episode of The Sun Also Rises is songwriting. The magic that can happen at the intersection of music and language. The power of the tunesmith's craft. During World War II, the Soviet Union was an ally of the United States, and both powers contributed mightily to the defeat of the Nazis. But the alliance between the Soviets and Americans was uneasy throughout the war. And in the war's immediate aftermath, the alliance unraveled. The U.S., and the USSR became bitter enemies, and the Cold War began. America and its allies were on one side of this war. They wanted democracy to take root in as many nations as possible, and to give people a voice and increased freedoms. The Soviets, on the other hand, were intent on spreading socialism and communism around the world. The Soviet leaders were true believers for the most part. They really believed that all other political and economic systems had failed mankind. They'd left too many people behind and that they were boldly building a new alternative that would really work as long as they could get complete control over every aspect of people's lives. So after World War II, 
the Soviets started installing communist-leaning governments in Eastern Europe. This was also partly to build a geographic buffer between the Soviet Union and its traditional enemies in Western Europe. But by 1949, the Soviets had installed communist-leaning puppet governments in Poland, Bulgaria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Albania, and East Germany. So these communist-leaning regimes were dominating Eastern Europe, and the Americans and their allies feared this Soviet system. America viewed the whole system as profoundly oppressive and even murderous, and the U.S. feared that the Soviets would permanently dominate Eastern Europe, and that from there they would keep on pushing further west so that the Soviet-aligned governments would soon be coming into power in Western Europe and beyond. So that's the Cold War in a nutshell, and it was waged on political fronts, economic fronts. It was waged with infrastructure, like the Berlin Wall that was meant to lock Germans inside the Soviet side of Berlin. And the Cold War was also waged with propaganda. Both sides really believed that their system was superior and that the other side was deeply flawed. So each felt that if they could convince people around the world to see their view of things, then they could win hearts and minds and spread their system globally and eventually win the war. So propaganda was a big part of it. The American government and the Soviet government used it to paint a negative picture of the other side and to make their own system appear as attractive as possible. But the United States recognized early on that propaganda doesn't work very well if it looks like propaganda. If you're dropping these very straightforward, preachy, you know, political leaflets out of airplanes, there's only so many minds that you'll change. U.S. President Eisenhower was a huge proponent of waging psychological warfare against the Soviets with propaganda, but he knew that it had to be subtle to be effective. He once said, the hand of government must be carefully concealed. So to accomplish this, the U.S. government often used books, TV, movies, and music. And the music may have included a certain well-known song. There's this song by the uh, 1980s German band, The Scorpions, called Wind of Change, which is this big song. Um, more in Europe, it's one of the biggest rock songs ever, less so in the US, but in Europe, it's just huge, ubiquitous. It came out right around the time the Berlin Wall fell, and it's all about reconciliation and the end of communism and tyranny. And it was kind of the soundtrack to the collapse of the Soviet Union. That's Patrick Radden Keefe. He is an Orwell Prize winning U.S. journalist. He was talking there to Tommy Vitor. And Patrick Radden Keefe spent several years investigating that song, Wind of Change, to try to find out if it was really written by the Scorpions, as claimed, or if it was secretly written by the U.S. government as part of America's covert propaganda war against the Soviet Union. This may sound absurd. I mean, the U.S. government has songwriters on staff. Come on. But it has been proven that the CIA, or the Central Intelligence Agency of the U.S. government, 
played a role in all kinds of artistic projects during the Cold War. One of these was the famous Boris Pasternak book called Dr. Zivago. This was an anti-communist book, and the United States secretly printed up thousands of Russian-language copies of it and smuggled them behind the Iron Curtain. The CIA is also known to have secretly funded a film adaptation of George Orwell's Animal Farm in 1954. This book is an allegory exposing the evils of communism, so America bankrolled what eventually became a highly successful animated version of the book. And then the U.S. did the same thing with Orwell's other well-known book, 1984, funding a popular film adaptation of it that was circulated throughout Europe and beyond. The U.S. government is known to have also grasped the power of song. They ordained the trumpeter, Louis Armstrong, as a, quote, goodwill jazz ambassador. And they flew him around the world for tours of Europe and Africa to promote the richness of American culture. The U.S. government did the same thing with jazz pianist Dave Brubeck and actually arranged for him to play concerts inside the USSR. The U.S. government also sponsored a European tour for the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And in some cases, the musicians waging America's soft power propaganda war didn't even know that the American government was behind it. That was the situation with Nina Simone when she was sent by the CIA to tour Nigeria. So some of these Cold War psyops were clandestine, but they were all part of American efforts to show people, to really show people using art and the kind of emotion that art has a rare ability to tap into that the Soviet Union's totalitarian system could not work. It was to show people that America's democracy and freedom were superior and that they were the way forward. So since it is confirmed then that the CIA was behind efforts with books and films and jazz and classical music, why not popular music like the Scorpions too? When you look at the lyrics of Wind of Change, you see mentions of Gorky Park and the Moskva River. Those are famous parts of Russia's capital city. And there are some very moving lines as well. The world is closing in. Did you ever think that we could be so close like brothers? It's a message of solidarity. You know, it's, it's bloodless revolution. It's hope for the future. And that message is packaged in the song's simple, and beautiful melodies, the lush harmonies and the driving power ballad rhythm, and of course that earworm whistle that bookends it. You can see why the CIA would think that a song like Wind of Change could have real power to move people, and why they would want to insert it into the Soviet Union. And that's especially true since this type of music was officially outlawed in the Soviet Union, but it was known to be very popular among the youth. Rock and roll had basically been banned in the USSR. Um, there was a sense that it was very closely associated with the United States, um, but also that the whole ethos of rock, this kind of rebel ethos of individualism and, and uh, sort of free expression, um, 
was inimical to the kind of totalitarian rule that the Kremlin counted on. So they basically banned rock. Of course, that kind of individualism and free expression can lead to all kinds of destruction and imbalance, but it was entirely antithetical to the Soviet Union's collectivist, kind of conform or die model. So you can see why the U.S. would try to use this cultural force, rock music, to try to reach the hearts and minds of young Soviets and also wavering Europeans. And you can also see why the Soviet authorities would take measures to keep that music out of their borders. But this song, Wind of Change, did make it into the Soviet Union and East Germany and pretty much everywhere else in Europe. In the late 80s and early 90s, its message of bloodless revolution became kind of the soundtrack for the end of communism. It was bootlegged all over the USSR and it became an anthem of freedom and hope on both sides of the Iron Curtain. It soared to number one on all of Europe's charts. And as the world watched the political universe abruptly ending and the curtain rise on something new, that song was the battle hymn to it all. Keefe argues, compellingly, I think, that Wind of Change may be the most influential song of the 20th century. Keefe traveled around the world to get to the true origins of the song. He went to Moscow and Ukraine and Germany and all around the U.S. He spoke with musicians and historians and some ex-CIA spooks and he really dug deep into the question of the origins of this history-altering song. Ultimately, his investigation was inconclusive. Many questions remain unanswered, and Klaus Meine, the Scorpions member who is credited with writing the song, maintains that he alone composed it. And that very well may be the case. But just the fact that this is so seriously questioned really shows the power of songwriting. The fact that there's a tenable theory that the U.S. secretly collaborated on a song that contributed to the fall of the USSR, that shows how potent a force songwriting can be. Edgar Yipsel Harburg was an American songwriter, most famous for this song. That's Over the Rainbow, which Harburg wrote with a man named Harold Arlen. The two of them collaborated on several songs, with Harburg generally writing the words and Arlen writing the music. And Harburg recognized that something transcendent, something almost otherworldly happens when words are conveyed with music. He said, words make you think a thought, music makes you feel a feeling, a song makes you feel a thought. That's a beautiful way of describing that magical marriage, that synergy that happens at the union of melody and lyric. 
The songwriter Jimmy Webb has written about this marriage a great deal in his book, Toonsmith. In one part, he says, It is not a poem. It is not music. It is in this gray area of synthesis between language, rhythm, and sound that some of the most acute of all sensors of human emotion lie. Wow, the most acute of all sensors of human emotion, he says, lie at this intersection, at this synthesis of music and words. That's an impacting claim. And Jimmy Webb's book is full of so much insight and eloquence on this topic. In one section, he calls songwriters the, quote, Swiss watchmakers of music and literature. That's largely because the constraints on the form require such painstaking precision and intricacy, just like the work of a watchmaker. Webb continues, he writes, Songwriters must accomplish our aims and tell our entire story in a time frame of about three minutes, plus or minus. Every word, every note must count. Usually, there is only room for one or two characters in our little radio plays, and perhaps 50 seconds for each act. This means songwriters are challenged with accomplishing an almost impossible task exquisitely. One example that comes to mind for me of operating within those narrow constraints and making every word and every note count is a Johnny Cash song called Five Feet High and Rising. This short song is a true work of art. It's worthy, I think, of being hung up next to the Mona Lisa for the world to come and study and enjoy it. But actually, a skillfully crafted song like this one has kind of an advantage over many other art forms because you don't have to travel to Paris or wherever it's on display to enjoy it. Anyone with an instrument, or even just a willingness to sing in many cases, can put a song on display and showcase it to anyone in earshot. But Five Feet High and Rising is the story of historic floodwaters that hit the small farm in Mississippi, where Johnny Cash lived with his family in 1937. The flood is described through the eyes of a five-year-old boy. That's how old Johnny was when this event actually happened. And the description of everything the floodwaters overtakes is vivid, deeply emotive. I think all five of your senses can be engaged hearing those descriptions. And then with every verse, as you hear about the water rising in the lyrics, the key of the song modulates, going higher and adding more urgency and tension. By the time the water is four feet high, Johnny Cash's gravelly baritone is stretched just about as high as we ever hear it in his recordings. But the water is still rising, and so he modulates up still another full step for that final verse. And he's almost sounding like the terrified little boy that he was when this flood happened. The urgency and tension of those key changes work so powerfully with the story told in the words. The story of the water, you know, rising higher and higher over the wheat, over the beehives, over the chicken roosts. As the listener, even if you don't necessarily know about key changes, you still feel something powerful happening throughout this song. And you almost experience the flood that's hitting this farm because you are being flooded by masterful songwriting. 
And Johnny Cash achieves all of this in about two minutes' time. This is, I think, the kind of thing that Jimmy Webb means when he says accomplishing an almost impossible task exquisitely. Well, it's five feet high and There was a well-regarded historian named Hendrik van Loon. He was a Dutch-American historian who did most of his writing in the 1920s and 30s. And he wrote his most famous book for his teenage grandchildren. It's called The Story of Mankind. And Van Loon really wanted his grandchildren to get excited about history. So he wrote about thousands of years of it in language that they could understand and that was engaging and colorful. When he came to the history of Napoleon Bonaparte, Van Loon covered it thoroughly and colorfully. He emphasized the hundreds of thousands of men who rushed to enlist in Napoleon's army, even for what was often meager pay, and to take part in battles that they knew they would very likely die in. Some of that history is hard to comprehend on a rational level. It's hard to grasp why so many men rallied behind Emperor Napoleon, even for what were often ill-advised campaigns. So Van Loon acknowledges how difficult it can be to grasp just the staggering sway that Napoleon had over so many. And then he wrote this. If you want an explanation of this strange career, if you really wish to know how one man could possibly rule so many people for so many years by the sheer force of his will, do not read the books that have been written about him. Their authors either hated the emperor or loved him. You'll learn many facts, but it's more important to feel history than to know it. So don't read, but instead wait until you have a chance to hear a good artist sing the song called The Two Grenadiers. Van Loon continues explaining a bit about this song. He writes, The words were written by Henrik Hein, the great German poet who lived through the Napoleonic era, and the music was composed by Robert Schumann a German who saw the emperor, the enemy of his country, whenever he came to visit his imperial father-in-law. The song, therefore, is the work of two men who had every reason to hate the tyrant Napoleon. And then listen to this last sentence from Van Loon. He writes, Go and hear it. Then you will understand what a thousand volumes could not possibly tell you. So Henrik Hein wrote these words after personally seeing some of Napoleon's soldiers who had been captured in Russia, and they were returning to France through Germany. Hein saw some of these French soldiers when they heard the news that Napoleon had been captured. And Hein was very moved to see how these Frenchmen loved the emperor more than anything, to an utterly irrational degree, more than their wives or their children or their own lives. There are even some seemingly suicidal sentiments expressed in the lyric because these troops wanted to be able to fight for Napoleon in the afterlife. So Henrik Hein wrote the haunting words to this song based on all of that, and then Robert Schumann put it to music that begins with a funeral march in a heavy G minor with a militaristic feel to some of the piano phrases. This showed how Napoleon's capture really felt like death to his men. And then toward the end, Schumann's music actually segues into the major key melody of the French national anthem, the Marseillaise. So the song becomes fervently, almost hysterically triumphant 
and jingoistic. Anyway, I find it fascinating that this historian, Hendrik van Loon, tells his grandchildren, if you want to truly understand Napoleon, truly understand his impact and his otherworldly charisma and the power he had over millions, forget about all the books about him. Instead, listen to this song. This song goes beyond what is explainable in words alone. It conveys complex, abstract truths, logic-defying truths. Go and hear it. Then you will understand what a thousand volumes could not possibly tell you. He writes. So he's basically saying there, then you will feel thoughts. We've left a link in the show notes for this episode, by the way, where you can check out The Two Grenadiers in its entirety with English subtitles. Jimmy Webb's book, Toonsmith, also emphasizes how important it often is for a songwriter to avoid too much predictability in terms of the meter or scansion of the lyric. He writes, In songwriting, uniformity in the length of the lines creates monotony and works at cross-purpose to the fluidity and diversity that interesting music requires. From there, he talks about the conversational tone that many of the best songs have come to use. So it takes a great deal of exacting work. And of course, the importance of that depends on the audience. There are many times when a song should be more accessible to children and have more predictable rhyme schemes. But Webb is just pointing out there that with more mature listeners, that can cloy sometimes. Another fact of songwriting, as in so many forms of communication, is that repetition legitimizes. Repetition legitimizes. Of course, it can be overdone, and then you may slip into the nursery rhyme pitfall. But a bit of repetition is very often necessary for the song to make an impact on the listener. Lyrical repetition, melodic or rhythmic repetition, or often all kinds of it. Repetition legitimizes. So some of these principles may seem to almost contradict each other. You know, try not to rhyme in too predictable a way, yet make sure to repeat enough to establish some familiarity. But that's the nature of art. Every time a rule is stated, the exceptions to it seem almost so numerous as to nullify the rule. Yet those rules have to be understood intimately before they can be bent or broken in an effective way. And along these lines, Jimmy Webb's book does acknowledge something that I've also found to be true in putting this episode together, and that is that words fail when describing music. Like the famous quip says, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Our words, when we try to demystify songwriting, will almost certainly fail. They will flounder and flail around like someone trying to dance out a description of the Taj Mahal. Webb writes about this with a, a well-crafted metaphor. He says, like a sodden Bronze Age wood carving, which underwater displays the most delicate nuance of light, shadow, and craftsmanship. But when it's brought upon excavation to the light of day, it crumbles into meaningless pulp even as the archaeologist tries to touch it, photograph it, analyze, and then preserve it. So it is tough to really articulate what makes one song sublime and another mediocre. Some of it's too ethereal and almost supernatural 
to capture in language. A beautiful song is a spiritual creation in many ways. So parsing its elements and otherwise describing it can elude language. It can feel sometimes like you're dissecting a bird to try to figure out what makes its call so beautiful. That's just not the way to go about it. But we, you know, we do our best. This topic though, of the mysterious spiritual song. Hearing a song, that's just what happens when sound waves, like those from piano strings or human vocal cords, vibrate. And as a result of the vibrations, air molecules start bumping into each other and they travel through the air and soon they reach a person's ear. And there, the eardrum and a bunch of tiny bones vibrate, and the vibrations are translated into electrical signals and carried into the brain. So it's just physics. There shouldn't be anything that defies physics about it. Yet, most of us have experienced the truth of Edgar Yipsil Harburg's observation. A song has the power to make us feel thoughts in a way that maybe nothing else does. So why is this? How could these vibrations in the air, entering our ear in a strictly physical way, how could they have such transcendent power? Mr. Ryan Malone is the host of the Music for Life podcast here on KPCG, and he has written about this in his book, How God Values Music. In one section, he writes, Your ability to be inspired by a symphony to be enriched by a sculpture, or to be uplifted by a sunset is a miracle. That ability is possible because of the God-like mind that God created in you. No animal has this ability. God gave it only to man because of our unique and special purpose. A feature of the unique God-like mind that humans possess is the ability to appreciate creative artistic endeavors. If you're interested in songwriting and music in general and in learning to understand its true spiritual value and why it has such extraordinary power in relation to the human mind, then this book, How God Values Music, is one that you won't want to miss. It covers the extraordinary origins of music and its true importance. It talks about the way people are told in the book of Colossians to admonish each other with songs not just overtly spiritual hymns, but also other kinds of songs too. That passage makes me wonder if more people should be setting our hands to the craft of songwriting and sharing music with each other. But this book covers all of that and much more, and it is free. We send it out at no charge to you and with no shipping charge and no follow-up or anything like that. So please check out the show notes for today's episode for a link to How God Values Music. Well, we are now coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises. If you have any questions or comments, please email those to tsar at kpcg.fm. Many thanks to David Brandon for his help with the music that we put together for this episode. And we'll leave you with these words from the songwriter Andrew Peterson. In a world where we walk around numb as lepers so much of the time, a song can make you actually feel something, a tingle in a place you thought long dead. That's what the best songs, the best works of art do for me.